0: A reading from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Amos, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, uh, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these, there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were, he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he, went into, to, so he went to stay with them. He was at a table with them. He took bread and blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Do not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us of the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Um, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Davy. boys and girls can head out to Story Keepers, and uh, I think we still need someone to help in nursery, so if anyone's willing to help with that, that would be greatly appreciated. You can head out to Story Keepers and nursery if you're young enough. Let me uh, pray, and then we'll ask God, as, as we ask God's help for uh, thinking about the passage. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, amazing story, this historical event of Jesus after his resurrection. Lord, we want to not only understand it, but see its application in our lives. We need your Holy Spirit to be able to do that. And so for all of us at different points in our journey of faith, we pray that this would be an encouraging and helpful time, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, For any of you who are visiting today or here for the first time, it's really helpful for you to know that uh, this passage is the final one in a series we've been doing over the last uh, five weeks. Today's the last one, a series entitled A Meal with Jesus. The idea behind this uh, series, which I've said before, some of you probably could say this in your sleep, I've said it so often, but that there are three ways that the New Testament completes the sentence that begins, the Son of Man came. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as we've been saying, those those sentences are statements of purpose. They tell us what Jesus came to do, what he came to achieve. But there's a third way the New Testament completes that sentence. Luke 7, verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. As if we pointed out each time, that way is different because it's not a statement of purpose, it's a statement of method. It addresses the question, how did Jesus come? And the answer is he came eating and drinking, which is just this beautiful observation about Jesus, that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's a sentence that I hope would want to What would make you want to get to know this person? If you are a Christian and you're thinking, how do I do mission? How do I do outreach? How do I build community around me? Jesus here gives us the model. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. So for the last five weeks and today, we've been looking at six stories of Jesus eating with people as told to us by the gospel writer Luke. And today we come to a meal that actually happens after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. This is Luke's primary post-resurrection account. None of the other gospel writers have it. And Luke just does a fabulous job here telling the story. Because even at the level of drama, it, it just has everything. Sorrow, suspense, puzzlement, a gradual dawning of light. Then in the second half, unexpected actions, astonished, uh, recognition closing with a flurry of excitement and activity. But as well as being historical and a wonderful tale, as well as giving us another account of Jesus eating with people, Jesus, Jesus here addresses people with dashed hopes. As we'll see as we go through this story, that the heart of the disappointment expressed by these two da- disciples are dashed hopes we had hoped they say and i'm guessing there might be a few of us here today who might well know the melody line of those three words we had hoped among us are probably some with dashed hopes medically vocationally politically financially relationally some of us today here perhaps feeling just disillusioned with life, perhaps even cynical about life, but definitely saddened. As Jesus addresses the seeming hopelessness of these two travelers, he addresses ours as well. What we want to discover today in the context of this last meal in Luke, which really, as my sermon title indicates, is really a first meal, it's a first supper in the new world that Jesus was creating, is is how does the risen Christ give hope to the hopeless? How does he encourage the discouraged? Along the way, we're going to look at the humility of the risen Jesus, the message of the risen Jesus, and then thirdly, the meal of the risen Jesus. So first, let's think about the humility of Jesus. Look at how Jesus operates in this incident right from the very beginning. Pick it up in verse 13 again. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So right from the start, Jesus is operating under cover here. He draws alongside these two people traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Luke tells us that's about seven miles. But Jesus is is incognito here. They don't recognize who's walking with them. And Luke actually is even more explicit than that. In verse 16, he tells us that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Whether there were physical reasons for the non-recognition, we're not told. However, the wording is such that Luke, I think, wants to us to understand that it was God who was preventing them from seeing that it was Jesus. Now, let me just say a word or two about these two travelers before we look specifically at Jesus's humility here. In verse 18, we're told that one of the travelers is called Cleopas. Now it's worth asking, maybe you've thought, wondered this yourself, why does Luke name one of the people here and not the other? There are, incidentally, a significant number of reputable commentators who believe that Cleopas' companion here was his wife, but the only person named is Cleopas. Why might that be? Yesterday, I was reading an interview in the Belfast Telegraph, which is actually the newspaper I grew up delivering as a paper boy. Uh, it was a question-and-answer interview with a young theologian called Andrew Cunning. Cunning grew up in a Presbyterian church uh, not too far from where I pastored in Northern Ireland. But in his early 20s, he turned away from most of what he would have confessed and learned in that tradition. And that turning away was definitely reflected in this interview when he was asked the question, do you believe in a resurrection? He replied this, he said, "'I have no idea what the Bible means "'when it talks about a resurrection. "'I am much more compelled by its vision "'of what the world could look like "'if the wealthy and powerful were brought down "'and swords were beaten to plowshares. "'I really don't think a resurrection of the body "'will make everything okay.'" End quote. Now, what struck me as interesting about this quote is that I imagine the New Testament writers, Luke and Paul and others, would have been just as compelled by what is an Old Testament vision, an Old Testament prophecy of of swords being beaten into plowshares and so on. But they would have added, but the resurrection is key to that future peaceable kingdom. The the resurrection is key to a world of perfect justice and shalom and, and love. So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Christianity hangs on the historical nature of the resurrection, that if the resurrection is true, then the future of those who trust in Jesus is glorious, the reality of which transforms our lives in the present. But if it isn't true, then you and I are simply wasting our time being here this morning. So it's crucial to the Bible's argument that what we are reading here in Luke's gospel about a risen Jesus is historically true, which brings us back to Cleopas. Why are we told his name here? Richard Balcom is a New Testament scholar uh, who a few years ago wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, in which he argues from the Gospels that the Gospel writers intentionally named their sources within the text to assure the readers of the authenticity of the accounts. So here in Luke 24, Luke really had no need to name either of the travelers. If Cleopas had not been named, the story still would flow seamlessly. We still would have understood exactly what was happening here. In fact, Bauckham argues that there was no reason for Luke to include the name unless readers knew Cleopas and could have access to him. So that Luke here was writing essentially between the lines Cleopas will vouch for the truth of what I'm telling you. Why don't you go ask him? And that's an important piece of evidence for the historicity of the Gospels, that there were eyewitnesses who could vouch for the authenticity or otherwise of the accounts. And one of those eyewitnesses was a man called Cleopas. Cleopas, who at this stage, doesn't recognize who's walking with them. There seem to be at least three times in this encounter when if you or I had been in Jesus' sandals, we surely would have let the cat out of the bag. And the first time would would have been, I think, here, when coming into the company of Cleopas and his companion. Here are two people who appear relatively insignificant in the grand scheme of things, and yet Jesus chooses to spend the afternoon of the day of his resurrection with them. If you or I had been the first person raised from the dead never to die again, it's unlikely we would have done it this way. We'd have called a press conference or something. You know, the Jerusalem Hilton would have been commissioned. CNN and BBC would have had their best reporters there. And we'd have been tempted to look straight into the camera and say, Pilate, I told you. But that's not what he does here. He comes alongside these two travelers and just starts to walk with them. And he asks them a question, verse 17, so what are you two talking about? It's a question that stops the two of them dead in their tracks, their downcast faces revealing their broken hearts, and probably a question that makes them look at Jesus like he's got two heads, and they say, you're a visitor, right? I mean, it would have been a bit like someone coming up to people on the streets of any American city on the afternoon of September 11th and asking what it was they were talking about. And Cleopas says, do you not know the things that have happened in Jerusalem in these days? Cue opportunity number two for Jesus. Surely he would tell them now who he was, but look at how he replies. What things? Isn't that priceless? That has to be one of my favorite questions in the whole Bible. Jesus has just gone through three to four of the most excruciating days any human being has ever faced, before Jesus or after Jesus. Not just the the physical anguish of death on a cross, which is terrible enough, but hell itself, as on the cross Jesus felt the Father turn his face away from him for the first time in eternity, as Jesus carried all the weight of our sin on him. That on the cross, God poured out every ounce of wrath and punishment that we deserve for our sin. Poured it out on his son. Jesus bore it all. And now, now when he's asked whether he knew of the things that had happened in the past few days in Jerusalem, Jesus says, what things? What astounding humility demonstrated by Jesus. Well, they proceed to tell Jesus what they figured he had somehow missed, here's what they say, verses 19 to 24, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So it's an interesting summary on their part. In many ways, it presents the facts. Many of the key elements of the gospel are here. They spoke of Jesus' death, they even mentioned the empty tomb. But the crux of their summary is verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. In other words, they had hoped that this Jesus was the Messiah, was God's promised king. But if Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, he would have been defeating the pagans, not dying at their hands. So they say, we had hoped, but we obviously were wrong. How were they so sure they were wrong? Because Jesus had been killed. At best, he was a prophet. Maybe, maybe not. But what was clear was he was not what they had hoped he was. Opportunity number three. Here's the perfect chance to put the two of them out of their misery, to have their eyes open, to say, it's me, I'm back. Look, I'm not dead. Let's go get your friends. Let's have a party. But Jesus doesn't do that either. Three opportunities where you or I would have been busting a gut to tell them it's me and Jesus doesn't even give them a whiff. Here's unbelievable, dare I say it, supernatural humility. Here's someone, I would guess, just on the basis of what we've seen so far in the story, every one of us would be intrigued to get to know for the first time or to get to know better. An individual in whom there is something just magnetic, something that draws us in and makes us say, you know, I've never met anyone like this before. Here's the humility of the risen Jesus. So if Jesus doesn't reveal his identity to the two travelers, what does he do? How does he give hope to the hopeless? Well, he points them to a message. And in telling the message, however, Jesus almost seems to deepen their misery by rebuking the two of them. Look at verses 25 to 27. He said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, Jesus perhaps sounds a bit insensitive to some of us here. You know, here are these two with troubled hearts, downcast, despondent, and Jesus starts telling them they're foolish and a bit slow. But look at why he makes that accusation. They, he says they'd failed to believe the message that had already been given to them, the message that the Christ had to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And suddenly for us as the reader, things start to become a little clearer. Jesus had not revealed himself to these two yet because they didn't understand the big picture yet. Jesus seems to be saying that until you can see why Jesus had to die on Friday, you'll never get excited about him rising on Sunday. Or to put it a slightly different way, that the resurrection of Jesus is only good news if you understand his cross. Big mistake that Cleopas and others had made was their misunderstanding about the cross. They had thought the cross meant defeat. Jesus needed them to see it actually meant victory. They had thought the cross had come as a big shock and surprise. Jesus wanted them to see that his death had been predicted for centuries by the prophets. They thought they need, knew what they needed from Jesus. And Jesus wanted them to see that it was the cross that was necessary to deal with their greatest need. Because our greatest need is forgiveness. Forgiveness from a holy God whom we've offended, derided, ignored, rebelled against. And the reason Jesus had to go to the cross and not stick around to write his memoirs, to write Jesus's soup for the soul or your best life really now, was because the cross was the only way, the only way you and I can be forgiven and restored into our relationship with the God who has made us. So ultimately no hope for any of us unless we have the sure hope of forgiveness for our rebellion against God and the sure hope of re- reconciliation with God. That's that's the gist of the Hope Explored course that we've been doing over the recent weeks. But the good news is that Jesus went to the cross to take the punishment I deserve and you deserve. He took hell for us. That Christ had to suffer these things before he would enter his glory. So this was the message of the risen Christ. a message. Jesus communicates while incognito because until they understood why Jesus had to die on Friday, they'd never get excited about him rising that very Sunday. So we've seen the humility of Jesus. We've seen the message of Jesus. It brings us finally, thirdly, to the the meal of the risen Jesus, this first supper. Don't forget, Jesus is still incognito. Jesus has been speaking about the Messiah and his suffering in the third person. But that's not enough for Jesus. He doesn't just want these two travelers to know about Jesus. He wants them to know the risen Jesus. He wants a relationship with him. And it's the same with us here today. Jesus isn't satisfied with us just coming into this building on a Sunday morning to know more about him. He wants you to know him. He wants a relationship with us. In fact, he can't actually give hope to the hopeless unless that relationship exists. So the question is, how do we get to know Jesus? And Luke shows us here that we get to know Jesus through his word and around the table. If I were to ask you, based on listening to the reading from what Davy gave us of this passage, when did the travelers, the two travelers, start to sense hope again I think many of us would probably say, well, it came when Jesus was in their home and he broke bread and their eyes were opened to see that it was really Jesus. But that actually isn't the testimony of the two people. After they'd got to the village and Jesus had come in with them and broken bread and their eyes were opened and then he disappeared, what do they say? Do they say, well, that was amazing. When he broke the bread, I finally realized that we have hope that Jesus is alive. No, no. Look at verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The turning point for these two and their hopeless hearts wasn't actually the breaking of bread, as significant as that was. It was Jesus first opening up the scriptures for them. I mean, that must have been one amazing Bible study. Luke tells us in verse 27 that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That in this afternoon Bible study, with two people walking the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, in order to convince them that he was alive, Jesus doesn't reveal his identity directly, but he takes them to the scriptures. Isn't that something? Which strongly suggests to us that if we're looking to Jesus to give us hope and to comfort us and to strengthen us and equip us in the midst of our troubles, where is he going to take us? He's going to take us to the scriptures, which are all about him. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless by taking us to the scriptures. Which is why, as a church, we unashamedly, Sunday by Sunday, seek to preach the Bible, teach the Bible, why we want people to be reading the Bible together in growth groups or one-to-one or reading it on your own. That if you want to know Jesus, he'll point you to the Bible. But Luke also wants us to see here that we get to know Jesus not only through the Word, but also around the table. Look again at verses 30 to 31. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Their eyes were opened. These two travelers were kept from recognizing Jesus until the three of them started eating together. By the time you actually get to this story in Luke's gospel, I think at one level it really shouldn't surprise us how this happens. It's worth pointing out something that Jeremy also highlighted in his sermon on Luke 9 earlier in this series, something that we should just look at for a moment here. I want you to look at these two verses from earlier in Luke and see if you notice any similarities between these verses and our verse here in Luke 24, verse 30. First one's from Luke nine, sixteen, about Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And then there's a verse from last week's reading. So we thought about Jesus sharing the Last Supper with his disciples. Luke 22:19. 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. You see the parallels? Taking, thanking, or blessing, breaking, giving, the same words used in the same order. And that's not an accident. Luke wants us to make the connection so that in Luke 9, the first of them, Jesus reveals his identity as the Messiah who will host the the final, the great future banquet that God has set for his people. But the way he will make that possible, Luke 22, is that he's going to die in our place as symbolized by Jesus's actions in the Lord's Supper. That this great and future... Uh, feast for us is free because the final bill has been paid by jesus already and now in our passage the confirmation comes in this post-death post-resurrection meal when jesus does the exact same things again as if to confirm and say i have paid for your sin i have defeated death and i will indeed host the feast to end all feasts in the new heaven and the new earth to which all who have put their trust in me are invited. But there's one other reference, this time from the Old Testament, that I think sheds further light on the significance of what Jesus does here at this meal in Emmaus. All the way back in Genesis 3, the first book of the Bible, we read of the very first recorded meal in the Bible, and it reads like this, Genesis 3, 6-7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. For centuries, that story has been told from generation to generation as the explanation of the hopelessness and despair and alienation and frustration and separation and trouble that all of creation has known ever since. That if you want to trace death and hopelessness back to its root, you would come to this very moment of rebellion against God. When Adam and Eve didn't trust that God had their best interests at heart, everything starts unraveling. But look what Luke does here. He takes some of that language of Genesis 3 And he describes the first meal of God's new creation here where he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That for these two people, possibly a couple like Adam and Eve, they discover that the long curse has has now been broken, that there is hope and comfort for the hopeless, that the curse is now being reversed, that death itself has been defeated. And look, the one who's ushering in this new creation, the Son of Man, having died and risen again, he still eats. Jesus shows that life after death is still physical. He wants to be seen eating so that we realize that the resurrection is not the negation of creation, but it's renewal, it's fulfillment. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise and beginning of the renewal of all things. And the future is a physical future. It's a future where we'll feast. It's a future where, as the prophet Isaiah says, I've quoted this the last two weeks, I'll quote it again, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It's a future that gives real hope even in the midst of present struggles and discouragements. But it's a future that calls for you and for me to respond 1602, the Italian artist, Caravaggio, painted the meal at Emmaus. His portrayal of Jesus was unusual for the time and that uh, the Christ is beardless, perhaps representing the disciples failure initially to recognize him. But the picture really captures the dramatic moment of recognition. The man on the left is in the process of pushing his chair away in astonishment. But there's there's a sense too that he's creating space for us to move into the picture. And Jesus's arms are extended in a form of blessing, but almost, it seems like, inviting us in. And as if that's not enough, that basket of fruit on the very front is teetering on the edge of the table, almost inviting us in to leap into the picture to catch it because caravaggio is wanting to lure us into the scene as active participants because this humble risen jesus eating and drinking longs for a response and that's the thing about jesus an encounter with jesus all is always a call to response a call to involvement a call to participate you can't remain a passive observer. You can reject the invitation. But why would anyone want to do that? Son of man who came eating and drinking. Don't you wanna to get to know him, or know him better? Jesus of such disarming humility. Don't you want to get to know him or know him better? The Jesus who gives hope to the hopeless. So pull up a chair, come to the feast, get to know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you, we marvel at you, we love you because there is no one like you. As demonstrated in countless ways through the Gospels, but certainly in this passage today. Thank you, Jesus, that you have... You have risen from the dead. You died for our sins, demonstrated your victory by rising from the dead, that happy day that has given to us the promise of even greater happiness, even greater hope because of all that you have done for us. So, Lord, may we feel drawn in by you to know you for the first time or to know you better today and in the days ahead. We praise you and thank you, the one who gives us hope. In your name we pray. Amen.